This week on the Twinkie Kiss is our third round with Lumet as we look at Dog Day Afternoon. We discuss trailers for Tenet, Honey Boy, and 1917, and we have some exciting news. We'll also take a look at your box office. The Twin Geek Cast theme is provided by AndrewNapierMusic.com. Happy Friday, everyone. This is Calvin. I'm here with David. Hello. And uh, today we've got a pretty good show coming off of the Tarantino week. We're going to keep it pretty straightforward this week. Yeah, I think it's going to be pretty low-key, just by the choice of film, I guess. Not as low-key, but... <laughs> yeah, we do have some exciting news before we get to it. I, I've joined the Seattle Film Critics Society. Yes, it's a magnificent, fantastic news and something we certainly didn't expect so early. We're not even a year into our website, and here you are already, you know, outshining all of us. Yeah, I feel like we've done pretty good work within a, a year's time to get established, get to a lot of festivals, and uh, I, I don't know, we're doing the deal, which is the important thing. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, above everything else, we've acquired quite a, a great crew who's all passionate and happy to work together on things, and we've, you know put out a consistent stream of content every day you know we operate which i'm very proud of i didn't ever think you know when you first approached me to do this project together that this was going to be a full-blown thing and it was actually going to succeed <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i i didn't think things would be doing as well as they have so uh, very happy that uh, everything's working out in the right way and that we have found even more success just going out on our own yeah i'm i'm very happy we did it's been a absolutely pleasure of an adventure together and just to be able to creatively do whatever we want and in a professional manner is an exciting venture i hope people out there are enjoying it too but you know first and foremost we're we're happy with ourselves and that's what's important yeah i mean we're very pleased with what we're putting out and that's a good place to be where you have creative freedom and the ability to create what you want and that's what this website's about so. yeah until we get too narcissistic about it then it becomes a problem <laughs> <laughs> we're getting there um so we have a few trailers i guess we should start with the tenet which you weren't really able to see right well was there a trailer for it as far as i knew there was just an animated poster um i i got a trailer before uh fast and furious so oh. um it has like a blaring inception kind of score um, it says you're ready to meet the new protagonist and then it's just like a clip of a gas mask and uh, not very much else so it's you know it's probably not a lot more information i haven't seen the animated trailer so it sounds more like a like bare bones teaser if anything oh yeah it's it's just a teaser it's like a 30 second thing with you know in blaring inception horns and uh it's not out on the internet right now so uh, I guess that's kind of a cool thing. I like seeing um, a trailer that I'm really happy I saw in the theater because uh, it was so loud and sounded so good that uh, I was like, well, that's the right place to see it. Do we know anything about the film? Like, I haven't heard anything about what it actually is, and it's not like I'm paying attention to top Christopher Nolan news. It seems like it'll be something like a dreamscape like Inception, but the guy's going in reverse and... Uh, it's playing out something about secret agents and dreams. I don't want to say too much because we don't really know yet, do we? I guess not. I don't know. I kind of wish Christopher Nolan would just do something that's not so complicated once. Like, 
Couldn't even do a war film straightforward. He had to make some special gimmick with it. And, you know, I liked Dunkirk, but it's got the problem of just, like, there. there's no... I think there's no value in the film outside of seeing it in that theater experience. It's all about the spectacle, which is great, but, you know, what's the point in seeing I mean, it at home? I think I really prefer that. I think I... I like the theater experience more than anything. Um, I never get as much of anything out of watching at home, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean... It's a different kind of thing. It depends on... For one thing, I think the theater experience is highly dependent on the audience you're with. If you get a shitty audience, then it's going to really ruin the movie. But if you get a great audience, it can really heighten it. But I think really all movies were meant to be seen in the theater, except for... I don't know, I guess we... There is a wave of films that are meant to be seen on Netflix now, you know, made especially for <laughs> that. But not all of them that are being made on Netflix are meant for that. No, I mean, even some of those, Roma and whatnot, are very, very dependent on being in theater, which is a weird place to be. Mm-hmm. Like in Roma, you have all the background noise and stuff that wouldn't just play on your TV screen, and everyone watched it on TV, so I don't think anyone got like the full experience of what Roma is. Well, it's the shame with some of those, you know, uh, films that are just getting distributed on Netflix because nobody else is going to take them, you know, or that's the immediate way to get funding. Like, I imagine The Irishman is not going to be ideal to see on Netflix, you know. On Netflix? Even though that's where it's intended. And the same with, like, big time last year. I was so glad I got to go see The Other Side of the Wind in theaters because it really felt like, I mean, yeah. that's what it meant. I mean, what, or- Orson Welles didn't intend this to be played on a streaming platform. He didn't know what the fuck <laughs> streaming platform was. You're not supposed to watch it on your iPhone, David Lynch. <laughs> I can't wait for one day to, to see those there, but... <laughs> <laughs> One day, Lynch will have to succumb. That's where everything's headed. I mean, there will be a day where we get, like, day of releases at the other... I mean, we're already there with Netflix, right? With Roma, but we'll we'll get more of that later on. Right, well, that's where everything's going. Anyway, we trail off a lot what talking about a non-existent trailer. Let's talk about the real trailers. <laughs> it exists, man. I've seen it. I uh, don't know. I don't, I don't see it yet. I think you're making it up now, actually. It doesn't even sound like it's a trailer. It just sounds like there's a bunch of clips <laughs> someone strung together and put Inception horns behind. It's a teaser. It's a dope teaser. But uh, other than that, I saw uh, the 1917 trailer right after that. Right, that's the new Sam Mendes World War One spectacle film. And most importantly, it's the Deacons World War One movie. That's all I'm referring to it as. Because I don't really have like a big respect for Mendes' work, do you? No, I mean, not particularly. I mean, nothing stands out to me. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, American Beauty hasn't held up so well. Road to Perdition was always just okay, and people like yeah. Skyfall, but Spectre kind of ruins that, right? Right. I don't. I don't have anything that you know. He's a pretty good producer. I don't have very much on the director side. He he directs like a producer too, but this looks okay. Yeah, the big thing I took away from it is it just looks like it's Saving Private Ryan in World War One. Yeah, I mean, like looking at his past war films, we have Jarheads, which is. You know, Jarhead is Jarhead. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I don't know, the, the film in general just it didn't... The, 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 based on the trailer, I didn't get anything particularly from it. Even from Deacon's cinematography, I felt like it was definitely just... It was aping from other war films in ways. I mean, it's hard mm-hmm. to, to do a shot running down the trenches of one film without calling back to Paths of Glory, but... <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much in once you, once you say that you're going to put me in the trenches of the World War One that... That always sounds fine. Right, well, I think there is certainly a, you know, disparate amount of um, World War One films, you know, seeing more of them, I think it's an interesting conflict that we're just now kind of 
remembering is is something we can talk about and you know and it's cool to explore hmm yeah, i think we moved past the world war ii thing like in the 90s it was kind of reaching a crux where we had to move to something new we, we um, have... and having our modern conflict kind of gave us that instant solution yeah we have exhausted all of our world war ii ideas i think we're done with that and we should move on yeah <laughs> Yeah, I think there's still a little bit of life left in World War One, but I think it's getting there too. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It has some some interesting conflicts, and it's a war not as many people really know about or understand. So, I guess bringing light to it, you know, it seems like a, an interesting thing going on here. But I was much more fascinated by the second trailer. Oh, which was uh the second trailer? Yeah, the second one you had me watch here, which was uh oh yeah, Honey, uh, Boy. Honey Boy. Yeah, <laughs> that looks really cool. I didn't remember what it was when you first gave it to me, but then I remembered watching it. I'm like, oh yeah, this is the Shia LaBeouf movie where he's playing his dad. Yeah, Shia LaBeouf, he he plays the father of this this kid, right? Mm-hmm. I, I gotta and, ask, uh, are you saying it that way to troll me, or is that really how you pronounce it? What do you mean? LaBeouf? LaBeouf? That's how the French pronounce it. I'm oh, just okay. using the authentic pronunciation. Is he French? I'm sure. You sure he's French? You wouldn't have a name like Lebouf if you weren't French. Well, I'm I mean, that doesn't mean he's French. His, his descendants might be French. I don't know. I've never heard it said Lebouf. And I feel obligated I've, to call you out on weird pronunciations. I've made it up, but I'm going with it. All right, all right. I'll just contradict Cause you. Because it sounds like that would... I'm trying to be authentic to whatever I assume people's culture is. Well, that's why I tried to do the same thing with, you know, Lumet. I thought it was French. But then we had mm-hmm. a whole debacle there. <sighs> Lumet. I gotta, <laughs> I gotta find that clip again. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, the movie. Uh, yeah, the movie. It was a huge hit at Sundance, and it's looking like one of those indie darlings, like a Florida Project or a American Honey. Honey Boy seems like an easy follow-up to that. Well, it seems like a very uh, intimate kind of film as well. The idea of, you know, I, I was watching it. I was considering how Shy is kind of getting into the character of playing his father, and I was like, man, how would would I do that? You know, especially the amount of self-reflection that takes and you, you gotta tread that line of being candid in the betrayal of your childhood and the the rough past of it, but also be you know, like not totally you know, condemning of it. Cause, you know, and not... I guess it, I guess he wrote it at rehab, so it seems like a way to find something out personally about yourself to make a film like that and that seems really valuable to make. Yeah, I, uh, it, it seems very interesting. Like, it, just that a very candid portrayal of your own self. It takes, I think, a lot of courage to do something like that. And again, even more so to to depict someone who's such an important figure in your life personally. That's a lot to live up to. Yeah, I think so. And it, it looks and sounds really good, too. I didn't realize it was going to be uh, such a self-reflexive kind of uh, early career in Hollywood movie. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also kind of interesting seeing some of that, like, if you grew up you know, watching Shia on all the Disney shows and whatnot, you can recognize a lot of the stuff that's going on in the the shots there and where they come from. So maybe I was a little too old. What was he in that I, that you recognize? One of the big things that he did is the channel star. He, he starred on the show called uh, Even Stevens, which is on mm. the Disney Channel. And so you recognize some of that, like that some of the costumes in there where he gets the, the pie thrown at him and stuff. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm vaguely aware, and I could see that. Yeah, I think it was like just past your time when you were growing up. But I caught it on occasion. Like I didn't follow Shia too much or anything, but I was very aware of him. And he, you know, he had like a big starring role in the the Holes movie. 
Yeah, I guess my cutoffs like ninety four or ninety five would be like when I start stop watching, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. That's probably right when he was coming around or so. Yeah. Um, I mean, I like I like Shia Shia LaBeouf because uh, he does really interesting stuff, and he's had a weird recovery post Transformers to the point where nobody talks about that because he's done so much weird stuff. Yeah, oh, I think that's the the interesting path you take. You know, it's kind of interesting seeing these Disney stars kind of uh, grow up and do interesting different projects, and they kind of become more adult. Yeah, and. Um... What else do we have that's out right now? We have the box office. Yeah, let's uh, take a look at our box office here. Uh, we'll start at number 10. Uh, most of this is all old stuff here, so we'll probably run through it, but let's start at 10. 10 is Annabelle Comes Home. Sounds like it has some fun quirks, and that uh, it would be interesting to see on video. I've skipped it to the other run, though. Yeah, well, we're not big uh, Conjuring followers, so, you know, it's just not something we're going to go see. <laughs> No. Uh, number nine, you have your favorite here still hanging on, Aladdin. I'm not taking any of this guff that people say that it's, you know, better than Lion King. Two bad movies doesn't make a good one. It's like two wrongs don't make a right, and I've had it. Right. Well, I, I definitely understand your complaints <sighs> with uh, Aladdin over all these discussions here. And I'm in the camp to agree with you here, you know, but I can see both sides. Look, just because you keep making bad movies, it doesn't make the last one any better just because everyone hates the new one. Well, it's just all kind of coming together in a giant pile of garbage that I don't care about, you know? Yeah. It's just an indecipherable pile of CGI and garbage and modern rehashes of old ideas. Nothing new. It's very sad. All right. Uh, Let's let's dial back the Disney cynicism here so we can talk about something positive. Eight. Number eight here, we have Crawl. Which you do like. Which is really fantastic. I really like Crawl, and I respect that what they're doing is making just, like, the traditional horror movie. It doesn't pull any punches, and I feel like every movie now has to pull some kind of punch, right? Uh, It has to have some gimmick or some subversion, and this is just like, what if we have a home invasion movie, but the invaders are crocodiles? Yeah, that's a, um, you know, really great uh, premise here, I think, that we're going forward with. Would you call them alligators? I, well, they're they're probably gators because they're in Florida. And yes, yeah, know, that makes the sense. Team there, not, not crocodiles. You gotta not crocodiles, crocodiles are more of a um, you know kind of African animal. Mm-hmm. There there are crocodiles so, around, but you're you're much more likely to encounter gators in the, the United States in the various swamplands than you are any crocodile. Crocodiles are like you know South American or African. What I really like about it is after she's chased down the storm and she gets to her parents' house, the context of the environment changes as the water rises through the house so it provides like a new like layer or like a fun house for the director to like find a new territory for her to kind of explore an old area of her life and to kind of reunite with their father but that stuff's all just surface and the good stuff's all uh, alligators yeah so also you know for anyone interested check out Calvin's review of you know crawl on the site which is very marvelously written Thank you very much. Um, what do we have after this? Number seven, we have The Farewell, which we also just got a recent review of here. Laura did our review for the site. Yeah, Laura did a fantastic job, and uh, she's been visiting her parents a lot lately, who are getting a little bit older, so it's a really sweet review seeing that she's come from that personal perspective of what um, what Alzheimer's or I don't know much about The Farewell, but what this you know late life 
illness kind of inflicts on the family and when's the time to be honest with each other. Yeah, it's uh, nice to have that personal touch in your reviews like that. I think that's what makes some of those um, more really interesting other than just reading the, the you know, the stats, and you know, kind of by <laughs> yeah. every review. we got to check off um, all the yeah. boxes. Do you want to buy or see the movie? No, I just want to see what people think of it. <laughs> I think those are always the most interesting reviews, and I really enjoyed Laura's here this time. So props to her as well. Do you plan on seeing yeah. Farewell? Uh, yeah, I do. I, I don't know when. Probably next week sometime. Alright. Uh, well, hopefully we'll hear more about it then next week if you get to it by then. Mm-hmm. And number six, uh, surprisingly, the it has not moved at all. Number six is yesterday, just stayed in the same spot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess uh, we've been talking a lot about the Beatles. So I think uh, I think our site's all fan of Beatles, which is more rare than you could probably imagine right now. That uh, that so many adults would actually be into it, and to have a movie like this that. Uh, reflects on what it would be like without them i just don't think it explores like that full territory of how our lives would really be without a huge influence on us i think it's just nice that we can we can all display a variety of taste like you said you know it doesn't seem as common for people to like the beatles nowadays but i think it's just not in the topic of discussion like i think people who are more on the modern music scene may not as much but anyone who's really taken time to consider all forms really loves and you know it's funny that we can have conversations about all of the Beatles albums and then the next day we're talking about the new Tool album that's out in the chat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have very diverse tastes just among a few people that um yeah, we have a wide range and I was surprised cuz it was like Jesse and then Laura were like, "Yeah, our, our days made. We have uh, Tool albums." I'm like, "Okay, well, we all have kind of the same thing." Mhm. It's interesting to watch kind of unfold cuz I'm I'm definitely more on the Beatles side of things, not that they aren't, but you know, I had nothing to contribute to that conversation. But ten minute Tool song that feels like it's three minutes. It's it's fantastic. Um, Maybe if Tool were gone, my life would be changed. Oh well. What do we have after this? Uh, We have uh, five. We have Toy Story four. Still here. Are you planning on seeing it once it comes to video? Maybe like if it just happens to to fall into my lap one day. Like I'm not gonna seek this out just because I. I'm done. I'm, I'm done. You know, I don't have a whole interest. Even with all the positive reviews, I'm just like, I'm just not inclined to see it. I don't know. I don't know. I really think you'd get something out of it. You think I would? I think it, I think it has more to offer than three, but I feel like I can't rewatch it also. I feel like I'm, I feel like it gave me closure again. Again, the second time. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's just, it's not. It didn't need to be made. Well, that's the thing is that I, I don't. I don't see anything immediately where I'm like, oh, I need to, to see what happens here, and, you know, and it it just doesn't I think if you me. ever cared about, like, Woody's journey and progression as a character, it offers a lot at the, near the end on that, so it, it really ties that character together in a way that we didn't get in 3, so. Yeah. Well, I think it's one of those things where I'll eventually see it, but I might see it in, like, five years, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? I think that's perfectly when. fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, let's see, your number four here, we have Spider-Man Far From Home. Um, people got tired of quips and Marvel movies, so they just made a teen comedy instead, and it kind of works. Yeah, I've heard kind of both opinions on sides, where some people are totally done with it, like Tyler, whose review is up on the site <laughs> for it, and then yeah. other people who just didn't enjoyed it as a separate thing, you know. 
I could feel Tyler's frustration because I understand why you feel like you could be done after Endgame because it's called Endgame and everything that led up to it suggests that. Yeah, well, and not to mention that he also marathoned all of them. Like, you know, they, <laughs> he just made that his life for like a whole month and a half or two months. Not to mention he covered 22 Marvel movies on our website in the last two months, so he, I, I can't imagine being tired. Yeah, and he, he did fantastic work, and you can't blame him at all for being worn out. Like, many of us are, and I felt I kind of fell into the camp, and even though I'm always a Spider-Man supporter, I have not gone out to see this one, and don't particularly plan on it. I think I think the good thing about how they space these films out is that we have about, you know, six, seven months till the next one, so that's nice. When is the next? Like, Black Widow's not for a while still, isn't it? Yeah, I think that'll be, what, like, probably February or uh, March, whenever they start their year. And then we get, like, three or four in three months, and we're like, oh, we're so exhausted. Then next year, it's like, oh, I could probably go for one of those right now. Yeah, I mean, they're nice, easy popcorn flicks. You know, I wish there was more out there. It's a shame that they've dominated the, you know, uh, film industry so much, but I would not not yeah. want to have them. You know, they're nice escapist entertainment. I just wish we had something else. The stuff, uh, the Mysterio stuff in this is really interesting, actually, and really well considered and shot. So uh, that's that's really the one thing that I was like, man, that was, that was a good idea. And Mysterio is a great Spider-Man film. That's the thing is that they can probably keep churning out Spider-Man films for a long time because Spider-Man has a great villain roster. He really, like, goes inside Peter's head and it cuts away to, like, this horrorscape that's really fascinating and it looks really cool. Enough Spider-Man talk. Let's talk about, you know, uh, number three here, a little bit more, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which we podcasted. Oh, a real movie. Yeah. We podcasted yeah. about, uh, briefly, you know, last week in our ranking of Tarantino. Yeah, we did, like, a good 20 minutes on this last week, if you want to catch that. I mean, there's a lot of Tarantino in there, and I think we came around to it a few times. So, uh, there's a lot. I, I have to say, uh, originally I came out of the film a little little down on it, more than I was hoping to be, but since, you know, mm -hmm. seeing some of the more positive takes and a little bit more of the context of uh, what happens again towards the end, you know, I've, I've come around a bit more on it, and I have an, a better understanding and appreciation for it. Uh, you know, some of the issues I had before, I've kind of, you know, dampered down. It's good. It's definitely worth seeing, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's this last or second to last time we get one of these so it's just it's a lot of fun on the internet feeling that reaction and uh other than him getting canceled it's been a good time <laughs> there, there has been a lot of uh tarantino backlash which i don't know why everyone's taking it out now i mean this has been who he is forever and you know he's not i don't ever think he's intentionally racist or misogynist or anything like that he no. just, he's a brash person no. i miss b brash directors we need more of them yeah, I feel like we're not really allowing people to have, like, a vision. We're we're so unused to people really having a direction and a vision in their films that, that when someone comes in that's with a perspective that looks at, at all different from, like, this, you know, kind of, like, whitewashed Marvel perspective, people are like, wait, uh, this person has ideas and it's threatening to what I like. Mm -hmm. he, he's definitely, again, you know, very opinionated, very, very singular in the kind of films he makes. But they are very, you know, much his films, and I think there's a specialty to that, and you can't take that away no matter how much you want to try. Yeah, I think that I think that's just inherent in who he is. That uh, that's why we watch his films. That's what we think of them. 
Right, well, that's the very reason why, all of those reasons that he's getting critiqued right now, those are the things we want out of a Tarantino film, so... And he's right. not going to let you erase that. You can't. He's no. look, look how well he did in this uh, blockbustery environment. You know, he really shot up and made some serious money with this very artistic. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure yet if it will top Django, but it's definitely had its strongest opening yet. Yeah. So we'll see how that plays out. All right, here at number two, we have The Lion King still making <sighs> way too much money. Uh, the Lion King, but what more could be said? We've We've covered it in such depth. Uh, what else do we have? Uh, just, you know, real quick, we'll plug Kevin's review of it as well. Oh, yeah. It comes out fairly positive. That's on the site. Check that one out if you want some more... Uh, uh, Since we refuse to talk about it. <laughs> Since we right. haven't said one word about Lion King, go, to, go check Kevin's content. Uh, here, number one, we have our one new film. I'm surprised it actually topped the box office this time. Is the you are. Fast and Furious spinoff, Hobbs and Shaw. I mean, if you look through, like, all the biggest box office successes, I think you'll see, like, four or five of the biggest ones are all Fast and Furious. This is a giant franchise. Yeah, it's just one that I don't understand. I, I can't you don't. <laughs> Do you like cars? No. So, yeah, I mean, that basically answers it. I'm not interested in cars. I don't particularly like Vin Diesel or Jason Statham or The Rock. <sighs> Well, then I don't think there's anything in this for you, because uh, this whole movie is just rock and, uh, and rock and what's his name, Statham's just charisma pairing off, and uh, kind of like a battle of Tango and Cash, like, oh, these guys are funny cops, and they have to work together. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it's just, it's a, a weird franchise to me that I never understood, especially because it all sprang from a Point Break ripoff. And Point Break is awesome, so I don't... Point Break's cool, and um, the the ripoff is kind of cool, too, uh, when it was just pretty basic, <laughs> like, street cars. Like, we look back today and say, like, oh, those are those are some rice burners. Those aren't real cars. Like, those are cars that we could reasonably afford at this point, right? Yeah. But then, uh, then the way it goes with here, you're looking at, like, you know, like, military vehicles and, uh, you know, like, Humvees and a big, you know large things that are like kind of out of the realm unreality of what you could actually drive yeah i don't know how you go from like regular underground street racing to the rock like straddling a nuclear bomb in <laughs> in the antarctic that, that yeah. happened at one point right that was the last movie yeah the fate of the furious yeah i don't know that's an insane jump <laughs> i don't know how you get there but uh, maybe you can Tell me at least, like, you know, uh, what's what's your connection to this series here? Why do you enjoy it so much? Because I know you're a big well, fan. Well, I've always marathoned them. Well, it started with, like, my dad and I. We went out, and then we had the joke about everyone would just be yelling NOS the entire movie. Like, I need more NOS. And, uh, so I brought it to my brother, and we've marathoned every single movie since then. Every time one comes out, we'll go through the whole series. So that's kind of my whole affection for it, is that it's really tied into family, and it's one that's tied into my family. So it's really easy to draw that parallel there right well that's the thing is family is a huge theme of the series so it makes sense that it resonates so well with that <laughs> it's so it's so literal that everyone every movie ends with like a family barbecue and vin <laughs> diesel putting his arms around people with the corona in one hand and it's it's so obvious what it's saying mm -hmm. well as long as it's you know still good entertainment i think like i don't think anyone treats these anything else in more than a big popcorn flick and we need those still but we do have an abundance of them. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm really a car guy, but they've really gotten away from the cars, so for me, that's all this one is, and I there's not much else to dig into here. Right, I did read your review. Your review wasn't quite as uh, excited as you sound right now on the film. Um, I think I'm excited about the franchise. I think I, I think Fast and Furious 9, I'll come back to like being fully excited if we get some cars back in there, and a lot of my favorite players in the series are kind of missing cause, uh, because of The Rock and Shaw, then... Of course, we get, like, Idris Elba in this one replacing some of the old guys, but it's not, like, the family feeling of the other ones, so I feel like they kind of ripped out what I actually liked about the movies and kind of made a buddy comedy that I don't really care about and no one cares about. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, $60 million worth of people seem to care about this weekend, but we'll see how it fares again <laughs> next week. <laughs> I think it's a fun theater experience. Uh, in the meantime, let's get to our film here. Yeah, so today we've uh, come back to our, apparently, our favorite director to talk about somehow we, this will be the third lumet film we already came up in the podcast earlier man we, we really do love this guy don't we <laughs> yeah we've given him a lot of attention yeah deservedly so because Sidney lumet's a fantastic director an understated director even i'd say he doesn't have a particularly flashy style you wouldn't call him an auteur necessarily but you know he has a string of you know fantastic films especially throughout the 70s and you know one of the bigger ones there is a Dog Day Afternoon. He wants to kill me so bad he can taste it. I got always gonna kill him. Attica! 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 This is such a great showing for um Pacino's ability. Yeah, I think this is one of his best acting performances because he's so manic and, uh, you know, kind of panicky here, but it's in a very uh, intentional way. It's not like off-the-rails Pacino in the kind of caricature (laughs) way that we kind of identify him with now. This is a very Mm. concentrated and intentional performance. Yeah, I mean, he's really doing some method and character acting to get behind uh, what this what this real life guy was all about like uh, this is based on a true story uh, of uh, what would you say that he's a guy's going to rob a bank to pay for his boyfriend's operation and uh, uh, I think that's I think that's a fun reveal that it's a little bit gay and it has uh, things that you would never expect from a robbery film at that point all right well that's the, the interesting angle I guess we're already jumping into the uh, spoilery stuff there the big uh, kind of reveal that He's uh, doing this in his final desperate act to help his uh, lover who is trying to get their, their sex change operation gone through with. And, um, you know, it's very interesting considering the time. Not only was this a kind of a radical thing in the you know, 1972 when the actual event took place, but also just to portray it as candidly as it is in 1975 when the film came out. You know, it's very unabashed in its portrayal there. And I, I believe it did receive, you know, some guff for that, you know, for, for being yeah, that forward undoubtedly. about it. But it's very uh, important and powerful, I think, and, you know, a good statement for that, and again, reflective of the times and how kind of intolerant we were. And it seems that, since we're going to go into the spoilers anyway, I should just say that uh, it's kind of, if you don't know what's going on in the movie, he's asking for his wife, and they go talk to this lady, and then, then suddenly they bring the guy in, and you're like, oh, I see I see what's happening here. Mm-hmm. Well, he actually has, he's, he's got two wives, and then in that case, two wives. he's got his, his wife with whom he's bored several children, 
And then he's got his more real wife, you could say, the person who he actually cares about, which is demonstrated in this really great juxtaposition of phone calls between the two where, you know, he first gets a call from the, you know, the first wife and she's just nagging on him and kind of like just hysterical and not at all receptive and he gets angry and yelled at her. It's obviously just not a relationship that has any real thing going on between them. You could tell, like, because the couple of Pacino and this, you know, other woman, like, just, it just doesn't seem to compute at all in your mind. But then when you see him interacting on the phone with, you know, the, the man, uh, hmm. say, <clears throat> it's hard to say in this scenario. I never know with pronouns. I but think you, I think you say trans woman. Trans She's woman, looking for the yeah, operation. I, guess, yeah. I guess that's what you say. Again, it's, I don't know. But anyway, uh, the, the phone conversation is very, um, moving and they have a real, um, conversation between each other and understanding and even if it gets emotionally heightened at times it's a very it's probably the most powerful scene in the film this Mm. very kind of small intimate conversation between the two i think it has a great bait and switch that way when you start seeing what uh what um what the character is all about and what pachia is really doing here um i feel like it's a I feel like it has that bait and switch where you're thinking, oh, he's doing this for, you know, to escape, like, his situation. His wife doesn't seem good. Then you see how she kind of pushed him into this other lifestyle to kind of accept who he really is. Because, you know, like, mid-70s, people were able to start doing that kind of thing. Right. Well, I think what Dog Day Afternoon does a really great job of is this demonstration of, you know, like, genuine class struggle. Coming out of the, the 60s, you know, into the early 70s here, there was a huge you know, spirit between the, you know, the underprivileged like that and being, you know, uh, ostracized. And so they... There's the great moment. Um, I guess we should just talk about at first that it's kind of like a hostage situation where the aggressors are almost like hostages of the police here. And they're like trying to figure out like demands and what they want. And most of the movie then takes place between like uh, Sonny coming out of the bank and like trying to you know, talk the situation down, get himself a bus so he could get to a plane, then, you know, it's kind of like a hostage negotiations, really. Yeah, well, that's exactly what it is, and we see that in a lot of the kind of 70s films, where you can see that we clearly didn't have a good grip on this uh, situation, understanding how to do things. I remember, you know, uh, I think about a similar situation in, like, a couple years earlier in Dirty Harry, where he's got to talk Mm. the guy down from the top of the building. That kind of, yeah. um, In general, you can see how common this ended up being in that time period i really like that he i like his character he works with too um what's his name sal uh, john cazell oh yeah he, john uh, Cazale's, he's a fantastic actor and you know <laughs> who we lost at such an early time he only has like five film roles but they're like five of the best films they're ever. good he's in <laughs> yeah i mean both he's frito films. and godfather yeah it's good conversation he's uh in this film He's in another couple. Deer of Hunter. Deer Hunter. That's it. That's the other one. Yeah. So those are like the five films he did, and they're all mega classics. And he's great in all of them. And in this, he just has like such an easy confidence. I love when someone hardly has to say a word, and just their posture acts for them. Mm-hmm. I, I think the the beginning of the film is really some of the best stuff. The setup to it, because the performances in both Kazale and um, Pacino there, they are clearly like not confident in what they're doing and they're not very well thought out this is a an act of desperation and the way they're made up really shows that as well that they just have like so distraught and like sleep deprived it looks like 
Yeah. Because it was like on the edge the whole time about to blow <laughs> off anyone's head who moves wrong. I know, he's hilarious. Like he just doesn't he doesn't even want the girl to smoke, right? He well, gives her like the whole lecture, like, Oh, she's getting robbed and uh, yeah, you really shouldn't do that. Like he's he's such a maniac and he seems unhinged and like he's fulfilling more like a judgment against like humanity by doing this. Well there's an interesting thing you said there is that the film is funny which is really interesting because it's a very seriously toned film but there is an inherent humor to what's going on here the kind of clumsy way they operate here in the bank and the unpreparedness of it all like in the pacino's just like oh you know like freaking out every mistake going on in a in a it's mm. very humorful i think the the uh, how kind of pathetic it is in a way like there is an inherent humor to it but also because it comes in the sadness it's a weird thing to try and explain you know what i mean yeah, I could see it, yeah. I mean, uh, I think some of the situations, like, the tension's so high that it just needs some something to kind of settle it. Right. Uh, I, li- I like that the whole movie looks like summer, like it's, you know, like dog day afternoon, you picture, like, a hot August day, but it was actually all shot in the winter. Right, it, I mean, they they shoot it as, as, like, this, you know, hottest day, and Pacino's sweating like a madman throughout. It looks, you know, and it looks great, and the tension is very palpable and you know the heat always adds that extra layer to that i think about kind of like do the right thing in the same way where you know mm. you use the the heat and the environment to help increase the tension and atmosphere of the film yeah i mean the more worn they start looking by the end uh, people are having uh you know like the people inside are really suffering and you could see that it's not just like a cool winter's day or something Mm-hmm. No, it looks genuine. There's a lot of great design, you know, a lot of a set design gone into case here to give an authentic New York environment. And that's one of the big things. Lumet's, you know, one of the, the premier New York directors, you know, I think it's safe to say. His view of New York and all these films is just so tangible, especially the opening of this when it like cuts around to like the gas stations and uh, just the way Pacino talks like it, such a New York guy, you know, and he has this little lisp and it's so funny. I, I gotta ask, since you talked about the opening bit, since having seen Rocket Man now, did you recognize the Elton John song? Uh, I didn't. I didn't pick up on it. I guess. Yeah, the film starts up, uh, and that's one of the great things about it. As well, it plays a uh, Amarina. It's got a very oh kind of yeah bluesy feel, and we're cutting around and we're showing the the difference between all the kind of the white collar and the blue collar workers going on here, and the sweat that the the blue collar guys, all the construction workers, are going through, and the commutes, and how like just this, this huge difference in lifestyle. It kind of sets the tone for that uh, idea of what we're talking I mean- about here. It's very New Yorky, and you get a lot of feeling for like those family businesses that they're all running and where people are coming from before uh, before they go set into this robbery. Mm-hmm. I, I did want to uh, kind of go back as well and talk about the beginning because there is a, a lot of great attention to detail. I wrote down a couple things exactly this last time because I was noticing the glow. Okay. Because um, one of the things that I thought was really great, kind of showing their lack of preparation. I don't know if you noticed, but throughout the beginning, Sal's tie is backwards oh really yeah he's put his tie on backwards which i think is another one of those small great deals show just how uh not not at all prepared for this wall this is all very unprofessional you know and they they hope to get in and just get out easily but they they plan so poorly that they didn't even get the idea that the the truck with that takes all the money away that was on this particular day like everything you know you could that could totally go wrong did 
you could really see that aspect in Sal's character too. It, it works so well that he's unhinged. Mm-hmm. He's he's really great though. They're both it's fantastic performances. I love them both here, and it really carries. Um, you know, the only issues I think in the end of the film ends up getting a little heavy in its pacing after like the second half. It's really well paced throughout the first, but once you start to get into the mundanity of waiting around, it does feel like you're waiting around. You know, um, it does make you wait with them a little bit. Yeah, it certainly does. But the and one of the more powerful things of the movie is kind of in those moments, though, you know, the, the relationship and how it develops between captor and victim. You know, I like the there's a scene later, right, right around where the cigarette conversation is, where things have relaxed enough that Sonny is showing one of the, the girls how to, to operate the gun in a kind of military way. <laughs> but, but he's doing the, the march with it and the, the gun trips, the, the rifle. The kick and yeah. the... And it's just weird to see that, because I'm like, well... And I'm thinking about it, I'm like, she has the gun now. What, what, yeah. What do you do? And even at that moment, like, Sal's gun is being put to the side as well. Like, he's just left it on the table. Like, like there, here is an opportunity for them to escape, but they, they don't. And I think it's, <laughs> they get, they're really nonchalant with their uh, victims, because they're, like, talking about taking them on vacation with them. And, you know, it's like, that's, like, where, where a part of the humor is, is, like... These guys are not competent or trained robbers. They're, you know, they're just, they're probably nice guys mostly. They just have this thing they have to do. Well, and that levity adds a sense of realism to things. You know, I think it's important to have, you know, comedic moments in your very serious film because otherwise you risk just kind of losing an audience, making it, you know, much too serious. You know, by by putting some comedy in there, you're allowed to release a bit of the tension and build it up again. And also, again, gives it that sense of more realism. It's a very you know, forward film, and it feels like things are actually going on. It feels more documentary than, you know, uh, drama at times. Yeah, I I could see that they're having fun with it and that it wants to help string you toward these big feelings. Like, of course, you get to, like, the Attica moment and, yeah, like, the, the Attica Atticas, like, like, like that social justice chant that what are the police really doing? What's their use of force and how do we regulate that? So uh, it's interesting what it has to say about police in the community too. Right, well, because that's the thing you show very on is that the police are very, are almost as incompetent as the robbers here in the situation, just totally unprepared to deal with the hostage situation. <laughs> they are. And, they're even more prepared, less prepared, yeah. Yeah, and they're really trying and, you know, we... It's interesting to see how we tried to handle these these kind of hostages. Like I said, which ended up cropping up more in the you know the early seventies. You saw a lot more of you know kidnapping and ransom stuff going on, and you know this is when we were just learning to handle these things. Mm-hmm. And and you know and be, go ahead. and it's like the first time you had enough communication that you could kind of get a whole squad together fast enough to deal with this. So it's funny, like when the police show up, they have people like on the roofs around back. They have like the whole police force in New York to deal with these two guys who aren't really a threat to anyone. Well, I think one of the more interesting things to watch as well is to watch the reception of the crowd because it also gives you a mm-hmm. good feeling of the environment, the times, and how they change regarding you know their their captors here because early on they're all in support of sunny and they see him like especially during like the attica moment they see yeah. him as the symbol of rebellion against the police you know the youth rising up against the institution and that's a really great <laughs> thing but eventually you know things start to shift a bit more and once they find out that he's a, a gay man then they turn against him you know the crowd becomes more volatile towards him whereas before they supported him yeah, some do. Yeah, it's and then by, to see that change. 
by that point you start to find out like some of the crowd are armed and they're going to kind of show up or or uh, you know like the boyfriend of one of the girls he's captured is going like come try to take him out or something uh, there's so much i feel like there's a lot of nuance and just enough going on the entire time like enough new elements constantly introduced that i'm never bored with this well, there's a great uh, moment with that as well, where the the boyfriend tackles Sonny at that one moment where he breaks mm-hmm. through the crowd and gets her because the police like kind of dismiss it. It's just this offhand <laughs> remark. He's like, you know, he's just one of those, you know, you know, how those Mexican guys are, you know, they're crazy about the, the women, or whatever. Just right. That offhand comment about that dismiss that, and again, it's another reflective moment of you know the times, you know how we regarded things and how we still ostracized, you know, minorities. Both, like I said, you know, in a racial sense and in a, you know, the homosexuals, which is, again, the big part of the film. It's such a big payoff, too, for his phone conversation earlier, where you only hear her end, but you could see that she's like, uh, yeah, I guess there's, like, leftovers in the fridge, and, you know, I'll be home for dinner. Will I be home for dinner? Uh, you know, it's like, well, a woman's place, even in robbery, is still providing, like, the meal for the man. Like, even while she's captured, she's still caretaking. Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting. I think uh, Dog Day Afternoon is definitely a really great portrait of 1970s New York and, and America in general. I think that's kind of the big thing I take away watching the film. And it's a really, like I said, candid portrayal of that in, in all its uh, sense. Again, mm. with with the biggest aspect, I think, being that really candid conversation between Sonny and Slover, which I think is uh, gave yeah. a voice to that in a way that we hadn't quite seen before, perhaps. I mean, you see, like, you see, like, their problems, too, and maybe it would be a little bit more problematic today, but you see a little bit of emotional manipulation, like, uh, oh, uh, you know, like, the cops are listening, they just want me, and oh, I'm okay. You could see where this guy who's in a mental hospital manipulated uh, Sonny to do this for him because he needs it, and, right, and well, Sonny's in love, but he's a little bit of a pushover for this guy, or this uh, woman. Yeah, well, and the thing with it as well is that it feels like a real conversation between couples. Like I said, that juxtaposition between him and his original wife, you know, they don't feel like they go together at all, but the him conversation between him and Leon feels like a real relationship, you know? It seems mm-hmm. very genuine, and that I think is a very touching moment of the film and an important aspect. And I guess you could also say it was a, a brave choice for Pacino to portray an openly gay character like that i really think so at this point in his career taking that on was a big deal and i think he works so well with lumet between this and serpico too serpico is really great i think you know we get an even uh bigger performance in some ways from pacino there it seems like a more important uh one like especially a lot of the lessons that we're supposed to have learned from serpico which have not changed today it's a shame to see you get the same Mm -hmm. sense with something like uh snowden you know uh, where you yeah. know, everything that they did to pave the path and you know unveil something about you know the secrets of uh, the how the government is manipulating us and we just kind of brush it aside. Yeah, Serpico goes really deep into the horrible things police were doing in New York around that time. So, and both of them kind of examine a certain part of that. This side, the lawless side, and that side on the police force. Uh, Serpico, a great book too. So, a lot of material to pull from. I think uh, both of them, they make a really good double feature, and again, they're both great showcases for Lumet as a fantastic director, and who knows, we'll end up doing Serpico sometime and get our fourth Lumet on here as well. I don't think he's a, he's a fantastic sure director. He wrote a, a great book. Everyone praises his book about filmmaking. I don't know if you've heard about it before. I can't remember I, the name of it. What was it? Like a, 
it's something pretty basic, like on filmmaking or limit on films or something. Um, making, making, is that right? What is it? Making, making movies? Yeah, that's what it's That sounds called. right. I've heard it's a fantastic, like it's an essential filmmaking book and worth checking out. I've got another one on the making of a network sitting on my shelf that i got to check out sometime too. Cause of course that would be really great, I bet. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it would be, and I'm, I'm waiting to get to it, but it'll probably be my next read, as, of course, we know from our previous network podcast. Well, like I said, uh, I didn't get a chance to make this com- uh, uh, comparison earlier, but Network and uh, Dark Day Afternoon being back-to-back films like that, 75 and 76, um, they have that kind of same tone and that same reflection of the world, and especially like uh, what I meant is in their, their comedy, the things that are funny about them, because... They are both inherently humorous films, but in an existential and dreadful kind of way, you know? It's almost like... They're, they're both very dark and socially conscious, and they're trying to move things forward in a positive way that uh, people in rough situations still have to have a voice, and people at the end of the line still have something to work for. Yeah. So I guess I got uh, one other question. I thought about this at the end of Dog Day Afternoon, thinking about how to do it. And I guess this is getting into a totally different conversation, but... Maybe you'll humor me for a second here. Mm. Um, you know, seeing as this story is based on a real event, and there are real people and everything here kind of portrayed, uh, but I wouldn't call this a biopic, even though that's kind of the parameters, you know. It doesn't no. It doesn't feel like that, because it's more about a portrayal of the event than it is the people. And I, I don't think it... I wouldn't say it's biopic either. No, because there is a certain aspect of biopic. There's an inherent, you know, kind of checklist of things going off. And... and this seems like maybe a silly conversation to have, and nobody's going to care about the restrictions of, you know, genre conventions. But it's always something, you know, it, it stuck with me afterwards, and I was thinking for a second, I'm like, is it? Is it not? And I, and I ended up deciding that it's not. I think that's a agreement you think, to have here. I just wanted to, to hear that. I mean, I think it's a biographical, like, crime film, right? Right. <laughs> I don't think it. I don't think it's about the person. I think it's a biography of their crime, though. Right, it's a it's a capture of this this moment, and using that as an example to reflect something bigger. Like you wouldn't call uh, another you know kind of historical event film, which I'm obviously not going to think of at this moment, <laughs> a yeah. biopic. But but basically the sentiment there is that it's the event that we're recreating for the sense of this is not inherently the people. Um, Al Pacino's portrayal of Sonny is not supposed to be a reflection of the, the character, the person. Yeah, I mean, we'd call Serpico a biopic. Yes, I agree with that totally. Because we're, we're capturing the person there as opposed to this, which is the event. It's interesting because they're both biographies about crime, but I think, yeah, it. I guess this only shows a bit of Sonny. Uh, it only shows him well, in this one instance, so it's so specific. Right, it's not about Sonny. It's about the thing that Sonny did. Yeah, um, I... I know, I know. It's based on a true thing. I wish we had a different ending somehow. <laughs> You're kind of disappointed by the the sad ending going on here. I guess it's powerful, but I just wish it. I wish it had somewhere else that it could close off in some way. Mm-hmm. Well, if it helps, I, I did read like at the end we get a little bit of the, you know, telling what happened to everyone at the end. You know, Sonny went to jail and Leon got his sex change, but it was actually because of the buying the rights to his story that he was mm. able to use the money to get Leon his operation. <laughs> that's that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, so if you, if you think about it, the robbery 
did actually get him the money he needed for the sex change operation. There was just a bit more consequence in there as well. I just think the feeling I have is that people should just be able to do that. I mean, it shows the <laughs> it shows how big and drastic the need was to be able to have a sex change operation. Like, imagine being born that way, and then your you know your lover has to go through and rob a bank for you to be able to live the way you're intended. Well, it's, it's just. It's still the case in some ways. Like, we like to think that yeah. we're a more progressive country than we really are, and we haven't made as much steps forward as we sh- really should have by now. This film came out, you know, what, 40 years ago or more, almost, you know, I mean, 45 now. <laughs> Trump wasn't in office back then. We've done some things. Yeah, but, you know, there's still certainly the same change. Like, you're not able to walk in and get a sex change operation as easily, especially in that situation, you know, that you... Yeah, I mean, the, have, the fight is very vocal now on I'll say both this, sides. We'll, we'll ha- we have progressed culturally to an acceptance point in a grand way that, you know, is very great, but not as a uh, society necessarily. You know, the we still have restrictions in place, you know, if we're still reverting back to draconian abortion laws and, you know, causing more restrictions for women, God knows we're not giving, you know, proper opportunities to trans people. No, absolutely not, and um, maybe we should figure that out. So. Well, it's the same thing. Again, you take a look just the very next year with Network, and you're like, well, that film is truer now than it was then. So obviously we're not making <laughs> yeah. proper steps forward. And I don't know if I feel that way about this one. I don't know if it's as timeless as like Network, but it's still yeah. a really great film. It certainly is. I noticed you know, when you first talked about it, you're coming off, you were writing a very big high, and your rating of it was... You know, like perfect for it, and I'm sure you didn't think necessarily this was as on like quite as good as like Network or even Twelve Angry Men, which was the other Lumet film we did earlier. But um, um, I'd still give it the same rating, though. I think that's interesting, but you know, I, I think we both certainly agree that these two are above it. But in general, I think this one is third of my current I, uh, understanding of Lumet. A third, too, for me, but a third on a really high ranking scale, right? Because. Right. Uh, it's such a potboiler of like a um, robbery film that it takes a lot to really get someone hooked when you're staying in place for a couple hours. So, oh, it's, it's I mean, I just certainly I've seen it. I've seen it like three times before this viewing, and I I still couldn't take my eyes off it. And uh, I don't know. I think I learned some new things about it that really improved it. Mm-hmm. I actually did. I found it funny. Um, I went back and looked through because I bought the Blu-ray. Like, literally just more than a year ago, I checked my Amazon history again because I bought it to rewatch it. But then yeah. I, I didn't watch it for a whole year. It's been sitting on my shelf for an entire year. And I think that speaks a little bit to how I enjoy the film just slightly less than you do. It's not nearly as rewatchable as those other two films, you know. Um, I, don't, I just don't feel like your life choices based on that define how the film is. You just didn't no. watch it. Well, I, I didn't have the inclination to, even though I did. it was just a motivation thing. But uh, just in general, I'm also not quite as positive on this. I'm still in great, greatly positive, but like I said earlier, like I have some issues with pacing in the middle of the film, and that's basically the one ding I can give it. Because it's uh, I don't really have any... I don't really have any issues with pacing until they leave the bank, which which takes most of the movie anyway. So Right. Well, no, it's again, it's, it's phenomenal. I don't want to sound like I'm... I'm pooping on it or anything. I just want to, you know, say that I don't think it's perfect necessarily. <laughs> but I think I, it's pretty close, though. 
I mean, I, there's nothing I would change. It's, I mean, I would change the ending, but you can't change the ending. Right. Well, and this thing is that I, I wouldn't necessarily change anything. I don't know how I would change the pacing. What would I do and interrupt <laughs> right. the film? It's just a, it's a, my interpretation of it. I'm like, oh, I wish this was this didn't lull as much as it did, I guess is all. I think for me it introduces a new aspect every time he comes outside that it's a there's always either a new character or a new scenario so I'm still like even though I've seen it three times I'm still on the edge of my seat trying to figure out what 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 these characters motivations are and there's always like a drip feed of some interesting aspect being introduced at all times to keep that kind of stationary setting interesting. It's it's undoubtedly a phenomenal seminal 70s film. You know, and I think a required viewing for anyone to watch it again. It's in that same camp. Lumet should be regarded in the same way we view Coppola and Altman and Scorsese in the same time period. You know, they all made these important, uh, I'd say, politically motiv- motivated films. I would, that's why I would call Dog Day Afternoon in the same vein as something like Taxi Driver or Nashville. Yeah, and I I mean, I think it's so socially conscious and that Lumet is so plugged into that that you get to feel a lot of that here. Mm-hmm. And his, uh, you know, his, his filmmaking capabilities don't get talked about as much because he doesn't have that, you know, kind of authorial voice as much as other ones do. Like he, he's, he's a maverick, and I think that actually makes him better in some ways than many yeah. of his contemporaries. I mean, you feel like Sonny's a maverick? No, I uh, Lumet, Lumet. Okay. Yes, I, I see. feel like he's a maverick of a filmmaker, and that often, you know, he he goes unsung because he fades into the background as a director more than he puts his, you know, style. Like, he doesn't have a distinctive style as much as I was saying in the beginning. No, I think this one is one of his more stylish. I mean, it. I feel like it has a little bit more than, like, the... Um, I think we found out from 12 Angry Men that he could do a lot in one room, so uh, it's no surprise they could do a lot in a bank. Yeah, and he makes great use of that single location, and, you know, uh, again, it's, I think the big driving thing with the film as well is that this is just one of Pacino's best performances, if not his best performance. <laughs> My favorite Pacino part is when he runs out and uh, asks the what does he say? He asks the cop to kiss him because he likes to be kissed when he's getting fucked. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's it's such a good moment. <laughs> I think that's as good a moment as any to end on. <laughs>